This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today, uh, you probably know, uh, you've probably watched him on television, uh, putting an orange slice on the edge of a glass of wheat beer, Dr. Uh, Keith Villa of uh, Seria Beverage, formerly of Blue Moon, and uh, the creator of Blue Moon, right, Keith? That's right, Jamie. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. We're down in, uh, in uh, outside of Denver, Colorado, and uh, Keith's newest venture after leaving Blue Moon has been to launch uh, two breweries, Donovan Brewing, as well as Seria Beverage, focusing on uh, incorporating uh, THC and CBD into non-alcoholic or de-alcoholized beers. So we've got a fantastic conversation, I think, uh, lined up. We're going to talk about wheat beer. We're going to talk about non-alcoholic beer process. We're also going to talk about uh, you know infusion and uh, uh, incorporating THC and kind of beer, something we've never talked about on the podcast yet. So I'm really excited about the conversation. Thanks for joining me today, Keith. Oh, again, thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, again, we uh, we love to pioneer uh, the, the world of beer, you know, really stretch that envelope. And and I'm sure you're, you're, a lot of your listeners have done the same thing. So uh, we're talking about the, uh, the same thing here and just having a lot of fun with it. Cool. Before we get started, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online to gdchillers.com. Mention the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller unit. And Tavor is the tastiest way to explore the world from the comfort of your home. Select delicious craft beers on the Tavor app that you cannot find in your area and get them delivered right to your door. It's not a beer of the month club where you end up with duds you have to give to your grandpa. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. All right, so we're uh, we're here uh, right before GABF week takes over Denver and everything gets absolutely crazy. I'm sure you've got a bunch of friends coming in town, Keith. I do. It, it's amazing how big GABF has gotten. I mean, in the early days, uh, I started judging in 1993, and I think I went to my first one, oh gosh, back in the 80s. And uh, uh, it, it went from almost nothing where people didn't know about it or didn't want to go. They had an excuse to not go to today where everybody is clamoring for tickets. It's pretty impressive. Let's talk a little bit, uh, you know, about some of your history in beer. Obviously, uh, you've uh, you've got a storied history uh, helping create Blue Moon or creating Blue Moon, turning it into a thing, helping, uh, you know, Coors turn it into a brand that's now as a single brand as large as most uh, other craft breweries as, as their own standalone. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you got interested in beer um, you know, in a couple of minutes, uh, how we got to this uh, point today where you are. Yeah, so so I'll try to stick to the elevator speech here because, uh, yeah, over the course of a, a 33 uh, year brewing career uh, there's a lot of a lot of inter- interesting stories along the way but uh, yeah I got started uh, initially I was uh, a micro uh, sorry a molecular biology student up at the University of Colorado in Boulder and I was planning to become a medical doctor uh, pediatrician and so I was uh, uh, geared up to go to medical school the CU Health Sciences Center and um, somewhere along the way as I was doing research uh, in the molecular biology labs, Coors was looking for somebody to do brewing research up at the, the Golden Brewery. 
and um, and I saw this big ad looking for, where they were looking for a brewing researcher, and I was a home brewer at the time because uh, uh, for a lot of your listeners that may not know. Uh, the Brewers Association was started and is currently headquartered in Boulder, Colorado, right near the CU campus. And um, and in those early days, I remember they would uh, hand out pamphlets about, you know, learn how to brew. Um, uh, and they really touted uh, what back then was called um, uh, microbrewing. So they had homebrewing and microbrewing. And microbrewing eventually became the, the what we now, now know as uh, craft brewing. But um, I, I learned how to homebrew, and, and it really fascinated me. So, um, so when I saw that advertisement for Coors, I went and talked to them, and I was the most qualified. So um, I co-authored a couple of articles as, as an undergrad, and so I, I, I decided I would start there and um, uh, change career paths. Uh, and I thought, I'll do this for one or two years, and if I like it, um, I, I may stick around here. If not, I'm going to medical school. So, uh, so I was there for a couple of years. And you took off to Europe at some point here, right? Well, after two years, I told the folks at Coors that, uh, you know, I loved doing this type of research. It was, it was just fascinating because uh, working in, on the brewing process and on yeast and fermentation, it was fascinating. And so I told them I was going to quit and go to Boulder to get my Ph.D. in biochemistry. And, uh, of course, they, they said, well, uh, what if we send you to Belgium to get your Ph.D. in brewing? Uh, and, if, and I, as a young guy, said, this is awesome. Um, and uh, it turned out that the director of research back then uh, at Coors was a gentleman named Finn Knudsen, and he was very good friends with a professor of brewing at the University of Brussels. And the professor actually had an opening when I was available. Um, so it was really a case of being in the right place at the right time. And... Um, so, uh, and at that time I had been dating my wife for, uh, gosh, eight years, I think. And so we decided to get married and Belgium would be our honeymoon. And, uh, uh, so we, yeah, we got married, headed to Belgium and I, uh, started, uh, working on my PhD over there. And, and Is this where the white, uh, the white beer, uh, wheat beer kind of bug hit you? Exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, I was there from 88 to about 92 uh, and it, this was long before Belgium became known as this beer mecca for so many beer lovers. Uh, so it was it was really unspoiled back then, and it was cool because you could go to a lot of the breweries and talk to the brewers and, and really see how they did things in, in the old days um, versus today. Today, it still is a fascinating country to go to in regards to beer, but uh, it's been... Uh, uh, kind of uh, developed for the tourism industry, so you, you see a lot more things that are um, uh, romantic and fanciful, whereas in the old days, you actually talked to the brewers who, who were these uh, men and women getting dirty, and, uh, and and you heard their stories, and it was it was just so, f- again, to me, the, the word that sticks out is fascinating, because it was just historic, it was just fun, and um, so I was there for, uh, for quite some time, and um, for me, the, the, one of the best parts was actually going with my professor uh, to consult. Well, he was the consultant, and I was learning how to consult and how to fix problems that a lot of breweries had. And um, we would go, for example, to the Duvel Mortgott Brewery, and uh, they would typically have, uh, you know, maybe six to ten problematic beers on a table, and we would taste each one, and my professor would... Uh, he would calibrate his palate uh, with a, a Dunhill cigarette in his left hand and a cup of coffee <laughs> on the right hand. And uh, he would take a puff, take a swig, and that was the way he calibrated. And um, he, he was really good at uh, picking up the beer, smelling, tasting, 
um, tasting once more and then telling them what they needed to do to fix that problem uh, for that particular batch. Uh, or he would describe what, what the issue was so that they could, they could avoid any, any problems in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I, I learned a lot from, from those visits, uh, not just to Duval Mortgat, but to uh, a lot of the Lambic breweries, uh, you know, the sour breweries, the, the sour red breweries in Flanders, uh, the Trappist breweries, um, even the big breweries. The, the uh, predecessor of AB InBev was a small, well, it was in those days a million barrel a year brewery called Interbrew. They were the biggest in Belgium, and they're the ones who uh, really became uh, aggressive and ended up purchasing Anheuser-Busch to form AB InBev. Uh, and those right, folks, right. they're great brewers, uh, great brewers. And um, in Belgium, they had the two biggest brands, the biggest brand of beer in Belgium in those days. And, and even to this day is a brand called called Jupiler. It, it looks like Jupiter, but the, it's actually an sure, L. Sure. <laughs> and it's, it's a delicious beer if you're in, in the mood for a good Euro Pils. Right. Um, I, I really like that one. Mm-hmm. So tell me about, you came back to the United States. You came back to Coors. Mm-hmm. They had paid for you to, to study uh, and get your you know, get a degree in brewing there. Um, how uh, how did this whole Blue Moon thing come about then? Yeah, so um, it, it was about 1994 that I got funding to start what became Blue Moon Brewing Company. And uh, back then, the largest selling craft beer brand or microbrewed brand, if you look back in history, was George Killian's Irish Red. Um it was a huge brand uh, selling back then at about, uh, I think the equivalent was maybe 500,000 barrels or something like that. Um, and for specialty, specialty beer back then, it was uh, it was a big, big brand. Um, they also had, at Coors, a new product called Zima. And this was uh, <laughs> the uh, first of these. Uh, they were so <laughs> far ahead of their time. Like. <laughs> it was the, the flavored malt beverages. Yeah. And, uh, um, so they, they had two successful products that were new and innovative on their hands. And so the, they didn't really want to give me a lot of funding for Blue Moon. And um, especially since it was a completely new uh, type of product, uh, Belgian beer uh, was something that was not really popular back in the early 90s in the States. Uh, Jeff Liebisch up in uh, Fort Collins, he had uh, some really great tasting uh, Belgian style beers he had made, but but of course his his bread and butter beer that brought in the money was Fat Tire, which was a, a classic American amber ale. Then of course on the East Coast, um, uh, Rob Todd uh, had Allagash that had just opened up, and he was making uh, his his White, which was great. Um, who else? Uh, and of course uh, Pierre Sellis down in Texas, uh, Austin, Texas, I, th- I believe it was. He mm-hmm. opened his Sellis Brewery, and he was trying to push Belgian beer, but uh, there was really nothing that cut through the clutter to tell the American beer drinker that, hey, here's Belgian beer. It's awesome. And, um, and I, I was taking a big gamble back then to, to make our flagship beer a Belgian white, which is a style that was, uh, again, almost unheard of in 1994, 1995. And um, uh, I, I put it all together, um, and we started brewing the first batches of uh, Blue Moon back then in 1995, Launched on uh, what was it September? I think it was September fourteenth, uh, nineteen ninety-five. And by that time, I had been a home brewer for quite a number of years, and I had uh, passed my BJCP exams. And um, so I'm, I've got a nice low number in the BJCP uh, system. Um, and I uh, I was just into beer back then. I loved just the, the history and the styles and everything you could do with beer. So so I launched Blue Moon, and um, 
and I, I saw right away that it was an uphill battle because so many stores took it in because it was this new product from Coors. Right. And so just on the Coors name, yeah, they took us in. Uh, but it didn't take more than about three months to get discontinued in a lot of stores, Safeway, Kroger, you, you name the store, and we were being discontinued because nobody bought it. And, um, and myself, I, I went to the stores quite, a, quite often to check on the products and, you know, uh, twist the bottle so the label was facing toward the consumer and you know, just because right. I was real, I was proud of it. And, sure, uh, sure. And to this day, I still am. Uh, but back then, um, you know, I'd, I'd see it discontinued and I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this thing is, is going to die. And, and how much, uh, how much was that, the, that early first production run, uh, to see how this thing would work? Gosh, in the early days, uh, uh, first year could have been somewhere around six, maybe 7,000 barrels, uh, for the Eastern coast. And, um, and it, it was really hard because, uh, like I said, we'd get discontinued, and um, and I was so I, I tried everything I could to keep the brand alive. It was tough, um, but eventually. Oh, and then I created the orange garnish uh, back then. Um, people are very familiar with Corona and, and that lime garnish, uh, so that was that was popular back then. But um, most bars did not carry oranges, so I had to. Uh, uh, get bars to carry oranges and, and and the whole impetus of that was that uh, I had traveled around the uh, markets where Blue Moon was for sale and I noticed that there were a few uh, bars that were serving it um, of course not a lot of bars served it but the few that did most of them topped it off with a slice of lemon and um, of course the recipe says brew, it's brewed with Valencia orange peel and coriander and so I, I asked the bars to uh, put a, a, an orange garnish on it, and they uh, most, they said no because they didn't have any. And so I had to think of a way to, to get uh, a cheap way to get them to serve oranges. And so I, I I got bags of oranges and took them to the different accounts and picked out strategic ones where uh, I knew they did a lot of sales, um, and I knew they they it, it was a good brand for them because uh, they had a certain clientele that just fell in love with the taste. Uh, so I picked those, gave them oranges to grow the brand even more. And um, uh, I called it a hub and spoke model where uh, it was a hub, popular uh, pub there. And then um, as it grew in uh, in sales, then I would spoke out to other bars that served Blue Moon. And I would say, look, the the original one there is doing a a fantastic job just by putting the garnish on. And um, so they'd say, oh, I'll try it. And they did it. And of course it worked. And uh, and the sales of Blue Moon started picking up. Let's see, that was 1997 that I did that. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I think that idea of ritual around beer is something again that Belgium, um, you know, with proper glassware and with a pouring process, has has really built into a kind of drama around that. Uh, but before we do that, uh, with over two hundred years of combined experience in the craft beverage industry, Country Malt Group's dedicated sales and support staff understand the importance of excellent ingredients, product knowledge, and expertise in making great beer. Country Malt Group's mission is to provide the products and services you need while making the process of ordering ingredients easy. The focus is to inspire your best craft. Order online at shop.countrymalt.com. And Balancing Barley and Hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. 
Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION. That's 855-692-5274. Or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. On that subject of ritual, you know, creating that garnish, putting that that lime in a Corona, uh, pouring it into this glass or a proper glassware, or even today now the slow pour pills with the you know, or, or the Guinness pour for that matter, pouring it halfway, letting it settle, pouring it again, um, creates a kind of you know drama and excitement around beer, and is probably something we don't spend as much time talking about, uh, you know, in terms of its relative importance, you know, in this whole piece. But you kind of tapped into that early on and understood that that theatricality and that kind of process creates some attachment among, uh, you know, to specific products, specific beers. Yeah, it really does. And, and I mean, it's, uh, for me, critical for craft brewers to come up with some type of ritual for their beer, whether it's their, their slow, slow pour pills, or uh, maybe they have another beer that has a certain unique ingredient they could, they could top off uh, the, the foam with. I don't know, but, uh, but it is something that I think belongs uh, to the craft industry uh, of today. Uh, back then, you're right, um, uh, the, the Belgians were really, really fanatical about making sure that uh, whatever beer a pub poured was poured in the correct glassware. And, and to this day, you could go to any number of pubs in Brussels or in Belgium, and you'll see uh, just this massive amount of various glassware that, uh, that the uh, bartender uh, has in, in a specific order, and when somebody orders a certain beer, they pick out the correct glass, pour it in, and then uh, present it to the customer. And I learned that early on, and, and I tried to apply that to Blue Moon. Uh, I, uh, let's see, 1997, actually at the very beginning, uh, it was just the beer served in a shaker glass. Uh, 1997, I created the orange garnish, and in 1998, uh, I, I got the uh, the glass. It's that iconic um, 22-ounce uh, wheat beer glass. And, and back then, I remember people said, this is crazy, you know, 22 ounces, who's going to drink that much beer? You know, it's just, uh, you know, this is impossible. But uh, we worked hard and got that glassware into accounts across America uh, with that orange garnish, and uh, Blue Moon just took off, and um, we hit critical mass in about 2001 to 2002. And, uh, and at that point, we couldn't make enough Blue Moon and just the market had changed, and we were uh, we were doing just incredibly well. So at that point, you went from six to seven thousand barrels in that in that first year, and now you're a couple million. Or uh... yeah, if, if you look in the uh, the papers, you'll see the, the press reports about two million barrels a year of yeah. uh, mostly Belgian white, which uh, is a uh, to me a, a huge success story because. Um, you look at other beer brands, and I think the next closest would be um, Sam Adams Boston Lager, uh, followed by Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So, uh, so there's um, there's a lot of uh, volume with uh, Blue Moon Belgian White, yeah. and the fact that it's a uh, a Belgian style wheat ale is is really important it, it, because to me, I'd, when I set out to create it, I didn't want to make an exact copy of a Belgian style w- a wit. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I chose Valencia orange peel, and um, uh, I used oats because back then the wits around uh, did not use oats. Uh, most brewers they loathed brewing with oats because they're very difficult to brew with. But I remember I 
I put a little more than 10% oats in Blue Moon to give it a real smooth mouthfeel. So it was it was risky. It was hard to brew, but um, and there is some historical precedence for that in uh, in Belgian style wit beers. Correct. Yeah, it wasn't the, out of the blue, but yeah, right. the brewers back uh, years ago uh, they did brew a lot with oats because that was one of the main grains that was on a farm. Yeah. But uh, when Pierre uh, started Cellus. Uh, kind of brought back the style in the 60s, I believe it was 1964, um, he chose to, to leave out uh, oats, so it was just wheat, raw wheat and, and pale malt. And um, so, uh, yeah, historically it's correct, uh, but over the years the, the practice had really waned, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to use oats because it's uh, correct and it, it creates a real smooth, creamy mouthfeel. So I did, and um, yeah, and the taste is, uh, uh, again, uh, Similar to a, Bel- a true-to-style Belgian wit, but uh, unique because it's very bright in the orange character. Um, it's a uh, it has a garnish, an orange garnish, has the smoothness of the of the oats, uh, and it uses uh, uh, malted wheat. Uh, I wanted malted wheat for a little more um, kind of an orangey color to the beer. If you look, it's it's kind of a, a deep golden versus the very pale color of uh, of traditional Belgian wits. So, for the color, the flavor uh, is is similar. To traditional wits, but but it has some uniqueness which I wanted to put in there, and um, yeah, it's uh, to me it's it's a great beer. That's the rough wheat percentage in that. Oh, it was it was about uh, somewhere around thirty percent. And all malted, no unmalted wheat. Yeah, again for the uh, uh, yeah. just the taste, uh, you get that real clean uh, uh, malted wheat taste, um, and you do get some color from it. It's it's uh, this beautiful kind of an orangish color, and. Um, it's hard hard to reproduce, uh, but uh, but to me that was important to make a wit that that uh, was not true to style, but a wit that me and my friends really loved to drink. And and if you talk to other Belgian brewers um, uh, here in, in the states or back in Belgium, you'll see that they like to put their own I would say thumbprint on on a certain beer style. Uh, Peter Buchart, who was uh, the brewmaster up at New Belgium, uh, he's he's a prime example of not brewing to style, but making a, a, t- a taste profile that people just love. And uh, and Peter, uh, that's what's one thing I really respected about him when he was up at New Belgium, is he, he didn't brew these true-to-style beers, although he, he's very capable of doing that. He really uh, would kind of uh, push the envelope a little bit and, and um, put put a, a flavor in that, that uh, maybe was questionable, but uh, turned out to be fun and exciting, and people liked it. Well, that's, you know, and since we're talking about Belgian brewers, I think it kind of speaks to that idea that what we consider true to style, I mean, it's almost a very American process of creating a taxonomy around these things. We create quote unquote styles because we need parameters from which to judge things because we also like to rate and judge and, uh, you know, again, create more of that hierarchy about that. The, uh, you know, what we consider beer styles and the way that they're codified is really a recent kind of development, uh, you know, a last 30 years kind of development as, again, we try to, add a structure to this, but the styles developed describing ranges of commercial beers made by existing brewers. Often that range was broader than the actual style as it was written. Um, But I think it's important to note that styles always follow the innovation of 
professional brewers in that kind of space. They are not some platonic ideal that existed for all of time that brewers simply strive to achieve. You know, they are descriptive primarily. And it was the innovation of commercial brewers, you know, pushing these products in certain ways that have created the concepts and structures of style. You know, something like double IPA didn't exist really before the early 2000s when some brewers like, hey, we can make this a little bit stronger and it's not to style. Um, But now it is a style and uh, considered a judgeable style with its own parameters. You know, and so these things grow, change, they become different things. Um, But it's that innovation that is what drives it from these makers not this, you know, sole idea of striving to match some existing style. You're absolutely right, Jamie, because uh, a lot of people don't realize that even American light lager, that's a style that that popped up here in the States in the 1970s. Uh, Miller Lite was the first commercial example that became successful. Uh, there were one or two before them that, uh, that, that did not uh, end up being so successful, but... Um, the advent of the light beers. That is a, a really uh, innovative American idea. And, um, and of course, today, you know, there are a lot of uh, craft brewers who disdain light beer, but, uh, uh, but it is uh, one of the most difficult styles to make because if you make any mistakes along the way, uh, they, they show up like a big sore thumb. And, um, and light beer is just that, that type of style that uh, is thirst quenching, um, and it is, again, very difficult to make, but it's a true American innovation, as is New England IPA, double IPA. Uh, it's so many fantastic styles that are fun to brew and even more fun to drink. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's get back a little bit uh, to talk about, uh, you know, uh, wheat beer a little bit more. So you've you've come up with this recipe. You've, you've built this thing. Um you know, from the way that you conceptualize it, what were some of the flavors, you know, that you were looking for that you thought uh, might resonate with people? I know you mentioned color, and I think it is a fascinating thing to see that you got an orangier color and then uh, uh, play on that orange on the ingredient and then also garnish with an orange to kind of carry the full aesthetic through the entire beer. Um, you know, are there some other elements, uh, you know, obviously incorporating wheat gives you a nice, uh, uh, strong head retention in this kind of beer. Are there other recipe considerations that you made around those kinds of, uh, factors in the beer? Yeah, of course, for a Belgian white and for New England IPA, uh, cloudiness is essential. So you've got to make sure it's cloudy. And of course you want to do it as naturally as possible. Um, I know back in Belgium, there were, there were some brewers, I'm not going to name any of them that they would use pectin or other things to, to really make that. Uh, cloudiness or haziness as stable as Wait, possible. Wait, Belgian brewers did that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there's there's some... Uh, Wait, some... you're saying Belgian brewers were made hazy as lazy beers over there. <laughs> I, I think you can find them anywhere. And, uh, well, all right, all right. And, uh, it's so, not just American hazy IPA brewers. No. Huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, so, so from my perspective, I, I wanted to make sure that, that Blue Moon was as uh, natural as possible, too. I didn't want to add a hazing agent or anything like that. And so it took a lot of work to uh, figure out the right times uh, to keep it in fermenting and then in aging. Uh, and actually the right brewing process to maximize uh, the amount of protein uh, and the amount of beta-glucan that's in suspension, the the carbohydrate content. Um, Because if you look at at Blue Moon under a microscope, you'll see very few uh, yeast cells. Most of that cloudiness is uh, carbohydrate and protein, and and it's hard to make it stay in solution. So so we uh, came up with a way to to keep it in solution uh, through through brewing uh, in the mash tun. You definitely have to have... Uh, quite a few steps in there, 
Um, and, and so your goal is to keep those particles as absolutely as small as possible. The larger they are, the quicker they precipitate out. Uh, or what is uh, what are you doing in order to achieve these kinds of things? Yeah, you want you want small particles that stay in suspension um, because you're right. The, the bigger those particles are, the uh, more tendency they have to just fall out of solution and, and uh, gather at the bottom is is kind of a, a sludge sometimes and. Uh, uh, so yeah, so you've got to go through the brewing steps to make sure that the, the carbohydrate and the protein are the right size that stay or stay there and stay stable. Um, so once you have that, then you've got a very nice looking cloudy beer with an orange hue to it. And this is a step mashing process. I'm just going to assume. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. It definitely needs some steps. You can't, uh, can't do a single infusion and make a fantastic, uh, wit beer. Um, how many? I know you're not going to tell me the temperatures, but how many steps is, are in, typically in your uh, your uh, ma- uh, step mash protocol? Three minimum. Okay. So uh, so yeah, it's uh, and it is it's difficult, but um, it's worth it because you have a uh, just the right body that you want, the right amount of alcohol, uh, the right head. Because um, for, for your brewers out there who uh, I'm, I'm sure most of them know about it, but uh, there are some advanced um, uh, brewers who who sometimes I run into that don't know uh, that, you know, just a simple hold at like 60 degrees centigrade uh, for a certain amount of time will maximize head proteins to give you that really nice uh, head on a beer. Uh, so in, there's a lot of other brewing uh, steps in there, science that you go through to, to really make a beer reflect what you want it to be. So CO2 is also a big part of uh, of beer, and that kind of effervescence is also part of the experience. Uh, what are some of your carbonation goals? And, uh, you know, and I imagine you're using kind of normal brewing process in terms of adding CO2, not going through a full-on kind of spunding process, especially if you're working out at a uh, contract brewery like that. But, but what is that kind of carbonation goal? So, yeah, for your um, listeners who may not know it, uh, beers that have uh, wheat, anywhere from 25% and up, uh, the wheat really smooths out the flavor of the beer uh, to the point where a beer can taste somewhat flat if it has normal beer carbonation. Um, and normal to me is uh, 2.5, 2.6. So um, uh, with wheat, you've got to dial it up to have a, a beer taste crisp when it has wheat in it. So with Blue Moon, I, I won't say how many volumes it has, but it does have a, a higher amount than normal, so that uh, right. it really uh, showcases that wheat. And um, and I think all, all wheat beers really should have, um, t- to me, just the number I'll throw out there is is three volumes for, for wheat to make it taste uh, really refreshing, smooth, good, uh, and to bring out the aroma too, because with that extra bit of carbonation, it'll push out the aromas that are in the beer. Um, uh, and, and it pushes them out very nicely, uh, assertively, so that you can smell and, and see what the brewer put in there. Yeah. Now, coriander, obviously, is a kind of important spice in, in uh, wheat beers. I know you had a, an interesting approach to evaluating different coriander sources and found a lot of uh, difference in, uh, you know, in coriander. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, making some of those identifications and how even today, as you're making these beers, you... Uh, you know, you work on that kind of sourcing to make sure that it's exactly what you want. Yeah, so coriander was really tough because in Belgium, the type of coriander they use in traditional wits has a, a pretty strong aroma of celery. So if you, if you go out there and just smell it, and, and even smell a, a Belgian wit uh, that's made true to style, you'll get this hint of celery in the nose. And that's, uh, it's correct, and it's, uh, it comes from the coriander. Uh, but if you, if you look at coriander, uh, it, 
the, and I'm not an expert in, in farming and growing coriander, but uh, I've found that there are a couple different types of coriander out there. The one that is rich in celery type aroma, and another one uh, that is, when you grind it up, it's rich in uh, fruity aroma. To me, the the main descriptor I, I give is when you have uh, some of this type of fruity coriander and you've opened up a, a freshly ground bag of it, is, is the aroma of Fruit Loop cereal. If you're familiar with that old uh, standby for breakfast, uh, if you go to the store and buy a, a box of Fruit Loop cereal and just kind of pop open the, the box for the first time and take a big whiff and smell that smell, that's very similar to fresh fruity coriander. And so that's what I chose for Blue Moon. And uh, and that's really one of the keys to, to making it so fruity. Um, you know, a lot of people back then made fun of it because they said, oh, this is a fruit beer, whatever. And uh, But I chose the ingredients really uh, based on quality and based on getting uh, the taste that I wanted in there. And, uh, and yeah, There's a lot of crossover between coriander and some compounds that appear naturally in hops as well and certainly that can produce some of those fruitier, uh, you know, uh, impressions in certain hop varieties right there's uh, in fact the main terpene these flavor active aromas in the hops and in the the, uh, coriander are are terpenes and the main terpene in uh, uh, coriander is is one called linalool and that certainly exists in hops it's a uh, and and by the way um, we'll talk about this in a few minutes but that terpene actually has some uh, anti-anxiety type of effect in the body and uh, uh, knowing that, it's it's one reason that we uh, put uh, coriander into our, our newest cannabis beer because uh, that effect of anti-anxiety mixed with THC really makes you uh, relax and after a hard day and, and uh, allows you to, to kind of de-stress. So yeah, it's a, to me, linalool is a, a real important terpene and, um, and all these terpenes that are in the uh, uh, hops in uh, coriander in orange peel you've got limonene that's the main one and again that's a, a nice anti-stress uh, terpene and uh, these things are very effective and in, um, in beers and in, and in uh, cannabis uh, with beers I think there's uh, some some way that we ingest these beers and unknowingly we like them but but I'm thinking it, it might be because of the terpenes our body reacts and we say man that I'd love that beer. I love that certain IPA. But I think uh, besides the taste, one thing that we're inadvertently doing is we're saying, oh, you know, deep down inside, that beer is making me very uh, anti-stressed or it's relieving my anxiety and I, uh, therefore my body really wants it. And so... Um, Let's keep on this. I'll, we'll come back to the subject of uh, de-alcoholizing beer. Uh, but since we're talking about those terpenes... Um, Last time I was down here talking with you about this, uh, when we were working on our issue on cannabis and beer, uh, we, you know, you you said something that was really interesting, and you started bringing up the idea of the entourage effect and the way that, as you're now as you're starting to talk about here, those terpenes interact both with uh, you know with THC and with each other in order to produce an experience that uh, you know we have. In the world of cannabis, you know this idea that there is sativa and uh, indica, and that these you know two different types of, of cannabis will produce different highs. Uh, but THC is pretty much THC. It's the it, you know as you were as you've mentioned to me before, it was the interaction of the terpenes with that that create different experiences of that high. I thought that was a fascinating one. And now you're also raising the the possibility that those same terpenes may interact say with alcohol uh, in the brain and uh, 
uh, impact the way that alcohol uh, you know, affects the brain as well? I, I would definitely say yes. Um, again, I, More I, science obviously needs to be done on all right, of these right. things. F- but Further stu- studies definitely have to be done. But uh, if you just look at it, you, you see, and even talking to people, you hear stories about uh, you know how uh, certain beers make them uh, really sleepy and relaxed. And uh, other, other beers may, uh, may make them feel uh, hungry. Uh, they just they've got to pick up a, a, the phone and call Papa John's <laughs> and get some, some pizza. But uh, my first, I guess, foray into seeing the power of terpenes was uh, back in Belgium when I was studying. I remember going to a small town um, where they held, held the annual uh, hop parade and hop festival. It was, it was their, their, I think it was held every two years. But I visited this town called Puparinga in, in southern Belgium where they grew hops. And that's the first time I had seen what they called a hop pillow. Uh, the hop pillow is just a little gunny sack uh, pillow, very small, maybe about, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, seven inches long. And it's uh, just a teeny pillow that you put underneath your regular pillow. And the purpose is to help you sleep. And I remember asking back then, what, uh, uh, you know, how does this work or what is it? And they did, of course, back then, um, they really weren't into terpenes. Um, what they said is, you know, these things just have worked. People have used them for hundreds of years. And, uh, um, and so that's, that's what they do. And so I, I took that, uh, one of those pillows and I tried it and, and it, it, it smells like hops, <laughs> but it does work. You put it under your pillow and, and you just uh, have a nice sleep and it, it's almost like a sedative, a natural sedative, uh, definitely non-habit forming and, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it, it works. And that was my first, uh, I guess, uh, the time that I saw my eyes were open and I saw, you know, there's something more here. And, um, when you look at it uh, a little deeper, you do see that terpenes are uh, quite effective uh, on the human body. Uh, and, and that's why I say work has to be done. We can't just uh, sit here and say, oh, yeah, take this type of terpene and it'll do that. Because all of us are different. And, uh, the, but the general effect is, is going to most likely be the same, whether it's an anti-anxiety, uh, anti-stress, um, an energy effect, whatever it is, it's going to be the same. And uh, I think it's, it's dosage dependent as well as uh, uh, the entourage effect where you pair, pair that terping up with some other compounds such as alcohol or THC or CBD and you get this magnified effect. So, uh, so it's, it's just really interesting and we're, we're right on the cutting edge of, of all that cool stuff that I think five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll be taking uh, terpenes with certain cannabinoids uh, you know, to lose weight, uh, to gain weight, to uh, um, have uh, a fun time, uh, to, to, uh, to be courageous and get out there and, and give that, that speech to your company or, or whatever. We're going to be using these things uh, almost like medicine, uh, I think, in the next five to ten years. That's kind of fascinating. Um, talk to me then a little bit. You now have moved into this realm with Seria Beverage uh, of making beer that legally can't have alcohol in it, but uh, you know because you are adding uh, soluble THC into the beer itself, and it becomes this you know that process. How um, are you engineering then using those terpenes that kind of experience uh, that you want to produce you know for people that are consuming that beer? Okay, and, and for your listeners, I just want to make make clear that uh, yeah, I, I didn't. Uh, uh, 
get kicked out of Coors for doing something with cannabis <laughs> or anything like that. I, I actually, after a 32-year career, I, uh, I reached what was called the rule of 85, uh, meaning you know your years of service plus your age. If it equaled 50, uh, 85 or more and you were 55 years or older, uh, you could walk out the door with your uh, pension, your 401k, your, your health insurance, all this stuff. And it was just a, a great uh, way to finish up that career. And, and my wife and I took a look at, at uh, the horizon of, of beer, and we thought, you know, non-alcoholic beer and, and cannabis beer seem to be seem to be something that is going to be exciting in the future. So that's when we started Seria. Uh, we uh, incorporated as a just a C corporation in Delaware, um, and uh, launched in uh, let's see, December of 2018 was when our first product was on the shelf. So. Uh, and we found out right away that uh, you can't mix alcohol and cannabis from a federal perspective because you can't put uh, anything federally illegal, such as cannabis, into an alcoholic drink. And at the state level, um, the different state governments that allow legal recreational cannabis prohibit putting alcohol into any uh, product that contains cannabis. So you can't mix those two ingredients. And, and also, there are a number of other reasons uh, uh, that are, I think, safety and health related. For example, uh, the cannabis plant is smoked or, or you take uh, uh, parts of it to help you uh, get relief from nausea. So that's why uh, cancer patients who have heavy bouts of nausea use cannabis so that they don't you know, vomit 100, 300, 500 times a day. Um, but that same reflex um, of being nauseous after you, for example, have a, a, a several shots of tequila, and in your body needs to get rid of that quickly so you don't get alcohol poisoning. Well, with cannabis, it'll relieve that uh, that type of uh, nausea, so you just keep the alcohol in. So the chances of getting alcohol poisoning actually increase if you mix alcohol mm-hmm. and cannabis. So that's why, um, just from those type of reasons, you want to avoid mixing the two. Uh, and, and so that's why we, another reason why we remove the alcohol, but, uh, but yeah, so for those people that have never had cannabis, yeah, there, there are some, uh, certain things you want to uh, look into before you, uh, try to experience it for the first time. And, and there are some cases of paranoia increasing. So when you mix alcohol and cannabis, so, uh, and that's why some people might, uh, have beer and cannabis and uh, all of a sudden feel like their, their heart's racing. They're going to have a heart attack or just, just, uh, some type of a paranoia that takes hold. Nobody knows why that is exactly, but, uh, but there are some cases of it. And that's why, again, um, we're real proponents of making sure you don't mix the two. That makes sense. So you go through a de-alcoholizing process. Your brew, you've, for Seria, your primary product is a, a beer called Grain Wave, right? Yes. And this is a, a Belgian-style wit or your a newer take on a Belgian-style wit. Certainly not the same beer as Blue Moon, but uh, um, in the same vein and style. Now, uh, tell me about that de-alcoholizing process. You know, there are, some, there are different ways to de-alcoholize beer. Um, some can certainly impact the way that you want to make that beer because if you're using heat in any kind of way to drive off alcohol, that can have super negative effects on a beer. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how you evaluated various means of de-alcoholizing beer, what you kind of settled on, and uh, you know, what, how that impacts some of the uh, concerns and process uh, as you brew that beer that then goes through that dealkalizing process. Okay, you bet. Yeah, the, uh, for your listeners that are interested in, in 
the different ways of making non-alcoholic beer, there are several ways uh, where you can end up with beer that's below 0.5% ABV, which our government uh, currently considers non-alcoholic. So again, anything below 0.5% alcohol by volume is considered non-alcoholic. And partially that reason for less than 0.5% is is historically um, there are some products out there like orange juice and other uh, uh, sugar, uh, sugary juices and products that uh, wild yeast will ferment a bit. So there is a small amount of alcohol in things such as orange juice. And so as long as it's below 0.5%, it's non-alcoholic. And so beer, uh, less than 0.5% is non-alcoholic. Um, if it's down to 002 uh, that's considered alcohol-free. So, so if you see the two labels, uh, in general, that's the distinction is non-alcoholic is less than 0.5, alcohol-free is 0.0. So, uh, so there, as I said, there are several ways of making uh, alcohol-free or non-alcoholic beer. Uh, one of the classic ways is just to do an arrested fermentation. Uh, arrested fermentation means uh, you make your wort, uh, you pitch it, uh, and then you allow the yeast to ferment for less than 24 hours. For some brewers, it's, it's just a couple hours. For some, it's it's maybe eight, maybe 10, but definitely less than 24 hours, and then you remove the yeast. Uh, and what you're doing is, is getting the yeast to get in there, ferment a little bit, make some flavor active compounds, uh, then you take it out before it uh, gets above, the alcohol gets above 0.5%. Um, the only issue there is that, and it's a major issue, is taste. Uh, you have a wort-like taste that really stays in that beer. So you have this grainy, wordy character. And um, and, and there are some beers on the market. If, if you get that grainy, wordy character, then you know for sure that's a, an arrested fermentation. Um, another way is to uh, use certain specialty yeasts that don't uh, ferment certain sugars. So, uh, for example, maltose is the main sugar in wort. Um, uh, it's it's uh, the main sugar that's produced by... Uh, um, the uh, enzymes as they break down the starches uh, from the malt or from the uh, barley plant and so um, there are some strains of yeast that don't ferment maltose and so if you use those and try to minimize the amount of glucose that's in the uh, in the wort um, you definitely can get a non-alcoholic beer Uh, but these yeasts uh, the ones I've I've looked at uh, have a oh it's a slight uh, strange ester type of character that's not uh, uh, the traditional that you get in in brewer's yeast. Additionally, there are some sour type of notes these yeasts make, um, and the net result is a beer that uh, uh, I think is close to beer. But uh, but you taste these things that you say, well, you know, it's close, but it's not quite beer. Um, and then of course uh, another classic way to remove alcohol is to boil it off. Um, there are well cases uh, of brewers in the past who created beers by boiling, uh, but by boiling. Um, the boiling point of ethanol is it's around 140 degrees so you basically cook the beer to get rid of that alcohol and once it's all gone then you you have an alcohol free beer Uh, but again the the drawback there is that you uh, cook the beer and end up with some cooked flavors in the beer which aren't necessarily good Um, but uh, in the 1990s the germans uh, at their brewing school in Weihenstephan which is right in right outside Munich, uh, and for those of your listeners that have been to Munich, uh, definitely they've they've probably heard of uh, 
Vine Stefan because Vine Stefan's they've only been around for like 600 years yeah. or something right <laughs> yeah yeah they're not yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of those new uh, new type of places they've been around a long time they know how to make beer and so the, they have a, a school there and they uh, found out how to make uh, great tasting non-alcoholic beer in the 90s uh, because they, what they um, theorized was that if alcohol boils at 140 degrees um, then what happens if you boil it under a vacuum and sure enough, you apply a vacuum, and the boiling point goes way down to somewhere like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's like, you know, you just bring it up to room temperature, and all of a sudden the alcohol starts flying off there. Um, and you maintain flavor. You don't cook the beer. And so uh, so that's uh, that's the way we use, because it really maintains a lot of the flavor of the beer. And, uh, and for us, uh, quality and flavor is really at the top of the list. But um, but that's uh, those are three three classic ways. That requires some specialized equipment that's not readily, uh, there's not a lot of breweries in the United States that are actually using that kind of equipment right now. Correct. It, it is very specialized equipment and uh, it requires a lot of hands-on uh, babysitting because this stuff is, is very sensitive. Um, so it's hard to use and it's, it's expensive equipment. Uh, it is pretty much about uh, the cost of buying another brewery. So, so if you have a brewery um, that, and you want to make non-alcoholic beer and you want to use one of these things, um, you're most likely going to uh, spend about the same amount of money as you did on your all your brewing equipment. Um, so they're, they're not cheap, but in my opinion, they're well worth it because you really get a, a good flavored beer. And um, it, So how does that work? You know, I, I mean, I would think that if alcohol, you know, gets volatilized, at that kind of temperature, then at that lower temperature, then you know if you have say hops compounds um, under that vacuum, they might also volatilize at a lower kind of temperature. How do you then think about and design a beer that can work through that process? Are you reducing hot side hops additions? Are you adding more you know later on? I mean, how does what are some of the other recipe considerations that go into that to understanding that that's part of the process? Well, the, I think the main word is compensation. You have to compensate for a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, well, proprietary you know, work we've done to figure out what compounds um, have to be compensated for, mm-hmm. which ones uh, leave, so which ones you have to kind of beef up uh, in the kettle. And um, But you go through that work, and you do find there are certain ones that if you uh, uh, really increase them, and then by the time you remove the alcohol and, and certain other flavor active compounds, you end up with a, a really good tasting beer. So, um, so if you overload and make a beer that would otherwise be undrinkable on its own, not going through this process, that it may uh, give you what you want as it comes out the other end of this. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And the only the only secret I'll give out is that when you dealcoholize beer, the process of dealkalization actually um, drives up your your final IBU. So that's another compensation piece you have to put into place. Is is you have to realize you're going to pick up um, you know anywhere from a couple to perhaps as much as ten IBUs. So you have to be careful for that if you're doing uh, a beer that uh, has maybe you know in the range of five to twenty because um, in that range that kind of a swing in IBU will, will definitely affect the flavor. Whereas uh, something like an IPA, that's a pretty minor change. And so, uh, so the compensation is, is much less. Is that just due to concentration that uh, some, the, you're driving off some liquid in this process 
um, but not driving off some of those bittering compounds? Or No, it is actually uh, the, that boiling under vacuum that, okay. that does it. It really uh, drives up. It, the you, you start to isomerize more alpha acids than you oh, do okay. Uh, okay. just with standard heat uh, right. boiling from the kettle. Makes so sense. Yeah, and it, it really is... Uh, uh, it's one of those things that you learn as you do it, and uh, uh, and then you just have to compensate. So, so yeah, for those those of your listeners that ever want to make a, a great tasting non alcoholic beer, uh, the name of the game is is compensating uh, your ingredients and doing a little bit of their own homework in order to <laughs> yes. figure out what that is. Sure, sure. So let's you know. So now you have this non alcoholic beer, and you are releasing that non alcoholic beer as its own standalone non alcoholic brand. You know, through some major chains, you were just out of the National Beer Wholesalers uh, meeting this week and are, are releasing that out there into the market. Um, but you also, in Colorado and California, then uh, ship that beer to a, a, a cannabis packager, right, who then uh, adds a soluble form of THC into that beer in order to uh, produce a beer with some uh, uh, cannabis uh, kind of compounds and effects. Yeah, that's it exactly. We uh, we make the non-alcoholic beer. It's a fully brewed beer. We remove all the alcohol, uh, ship that non-alcoholic base to our co-packer, who then uh, infuses it. Uh, so it's, on paper, it's simple. <laughs> In practice, it's very difficult. But uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, the co-packer um, produces our product under our specifications, and uh, then. Uh, takes it to the uh, dispensaries because it's a it's a two-tier system cannabis is much different than alcohol alcohol is highly regulated through a three-tier system the uh, cannabis world right now is so new that it's only two tier so so uh, you go directly from the dispensaries or sorry from the uh, co-packer to the dispensary well let's talk a little bit about uh, this kind of co-packing process i'm a little bit fascinated by how that works you know how um, something like you know THC, uh, you know, moves from the plant form into a form that has some sort of psychoactive effect. Then how that's you know built into some sort of system that's soluble and can stay you know in some even suspension inside of a liquid. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that process looks, uh, you know, because you're definitely doing some new work in this realm. Yeah. So for your listeners who aren't familiar with can- the cannabis plant. Um, maybe, maybe most of them know this already, but uh, cannabis is a cousin of uh, the hop plant. Um, the hop plant uh, is a uh, considered, well, tax- taxonomically, it's a, uh, a twining herb, meaning that it climbs uh, a twine, um, whereas cannabis is called an erect herb, meaning it doesn't need twine. It can actually grow straight up without any, uh, any help. So uh, so other than that, these are two cousins in the, uh, the world of, of plants. And so um, uh, in the same way that hops uh, produce those nice aromatic compounds that brewers love so much, uh, cannabis produces compounds that uh, have a lot of aroma, a lot of taste, uh, and have a completely different effect on the human body. Uh, in particular, one compound is THC, and that's produced by the uh, cannabis plant in very small organ or small organs on the, the plant called um, trichomes. Uh, so if you look at a trichome under under the microscope or up very very up close, you'll see it, it's just a very almost like a hair-like structure. Uh, but it's it's similar to the hop cone on on a hop plant, where the hop cone is is where all of those flavor active compounds are, are centered and concentrated. The, the trichome 
on the cannabis plant is where most of the uh, cannabinoids, and, and in particular the THC, those are located there in, inside those trichomes. And um, kind of like the hop plant, well, the hop plant is much newer to uh, uh, to people in terms of beer usage uh, because it was the Middle Ages that they started hopping beers. Prior to that, it was other spices that were available or maybe not even spice at all. Um, but in the world of cannabis, um, the first, uh, I guess, recorded usage would be a- around the year 1000, if I remember correctly. Um, people started realizing that this plant, or at least recorded, that uh, that it was active in this way. And these trichomes, um, what people would do was was uh, they would consume the trichome or consume the plant, uh, either by smoking or or some other way. And they found that that needed to heat it to in order to make these things uh, active and by heating what they were doing was decarboxylating the thc so thc exists as an an acid and when you heat it uh, you remove that acid and decarboxylate uh, the, the compound and it becomes very active in our bodies it actually goes right to um, uh, what are called uh, cb cb receptors in the body these receptors uh, are almost like um, keyholes uh, in a doorknob and the THC that's activated goes into the keyhole and actually matches and turns and allows us to experience this euphoria uh, or intoxication um, and it's, it's not um, through any other means such as like alcohol alcohol is a, a general relaxant it goes into the body uh, it relaxes your muscles it um, uh, it's very active because it goes through um, your, your blood-brain barrier and it actually causes some some toxic activity that allows us to get buzzed and drunk. Uh, cannabis is, is the other way, uh, meaning it's uh, THC goes into our system, has its effects, uh, but as far as we know there isn't any um, toxic effect and that's that's par- partially one reason I think so many young people are saying, oh, cannabis is healthy and they're drinking less alcohol and starting to take up cannabis. Well, anyway, back to the story. The uh, THC uh, is in these trichomes, and in the early days, uh, you know, say around the year 1000, people were making uh, uh, products where they would take all the trichomes, scrape them off the cannabis plant uh, into a pile, they'd wet it and form it into small bricks, uh, and the name of those uh, bricks with all the the trichomes is called hash or hashish, and then they would take the hash and smoke it, uh, which was just the concentrated trichomes, and... um, um, in a similar similar way, if you could imagine taking all the cones off the hop plants and and doing something like that, like that, like making beer, it's, it's a very very similar process. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of parallels, and um, the interesting part is that both hops and and cannabis have these compounds in in oil like uh, form from the plant. So you have to figure out how to get that oil like plant into the liquid. So for hops, you boil it and some of those um, compounds actually go into the liquid. Uh, again, it's, it's, uh, the hop uh, compounds are very uh, hydrophobic. They don't want to go into the liquid, but some make it into the liquid, and you get these very, very nice flavors from the hops. And in the cannabis plant, again, they're oily and hydrophobic, so uh, you have to figure out how to get them into the liquid. Unfortunately for us, um, we, we really don't brew with the hop plant, 
Uh, and if you did, you would lose a lot of the THC because it does stick to the kettle, the inside of the kettle. Brew with the cannabis plant? Uh, yes, with the cannabis yeah. plant, yes. Uh, because in my early days, um, when cannabis became legal in Colorado, you know, if, if, if I were to do the brewing experiments, I found that the... Um, uh, a lot of the THC actually stuck to the, the sides of the kettle in the same way that hop components um, stick to the, the kettle. You lose a lot of hops. And with the world of cannabis, THC is very expensive. And so, um, you know, you do a, a five-gallon homebrew with hop buds, you use about an ounce. And if you get to a dispensary here in Colorado, you'll see an ounce of buds can run depending on the quality, anywhere from, you know, 100 to $200, maybe even 300 uh, for an ounce of buds. That's a lot of money to spend for a five-gallon batch and lose a lot of that THC in your kettle. So uh, what we figured out is that the best way to do uh, uh, cannabis beer is to uh, put, figure out a way to solubilize the oil into a water-soluble form and then put it into uh, your liquid. And so we worked with a company that has that figured out. And by now, there are several companies um, in the, the, mar- the THC market that have figured out how to uh, water-solubilize the cannabinoids and allow them to go into liquids. So now you can certainly purchase water-soluble CBD, THC, and those are the main ones for now. But in the future... Their here- general process is like attaching them to fats of some sort or... In general, yeah, okay. yeah. I, I can't say exactly um, the the process because it is very proprietary. It's all proprietary, sure, yeah, sure. And so, uh, but you're right. And each of those companies are very protective of their uh, intellectual property around them. Very protective. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it's, I get uh, a fair number of pitches from them. Like, we'd love to talk to you about our, uh, you know, groundbreaking technology for uh, creating water soluble THC. Um, but it is kind of a fascinating, you know, piece of science to to have that be able to remain in suspension. Yeah, and, and really, that's that's what it's all about is to get that THC to go in in solution and not come out of solution. So, as an oil, obviously, it would float to the top of your beer and really have no effect uh, on, on your body unless you were to kind of consume that oil that's at the top. But uh, but then you're talking about dosage effects where you'd, you'd be consuming a big dose of that uh, THC in that oil versus if it were water soluble and dispersed throughout the the liquid, then you get a nice um, homogenous solution so that uh, uh, you consume the THC uh, in entirety only when you've consumed the entire bottle. I imagine the same concerns are right there where, you know, making a a beer that doesn't uh, have large particles in it that will precipitate out um, is also important so that you're not dragging some of that uh, THC down into the bottom of the can with uh, as something might settle out before it's sold or while it's in somebody's refrigerator. Oh, that, that's critical because you want the THC experience to be as consistent from batch to batch and bottle to bottle as possible. Uh, there are so many people in today's market who that still have not tried cannabis um, and they're afraid to, uh, be, uh, partially because of that fear of taking a big slug of it and all of a sudden getting stoned and right. uh, a lot of them might be in a social situation where they don't want to be stoned they just they'd love to consume it uh, but know that they'll stay in control and so that that's a great segue to our uh, our philosophy at our company is that we have low dose products so that people uh, stay in control and that they stay social and, and responsible because for us it's it's beer. Uh, beer is that beverage of moderation where you consume it, uh, you socialize around it, you stay responsible, and, and most of all, you stay in control. Um, 
one of the things that's hit the news over the last couple of weeks are, you know, obviously the issues with vape pens, but also uh, bootleg CBD, uh, certainly in states where some of these things are, are a little more challenged than they are here in Colorado. Um, you know, from your perspective, how do you evaluate, um, you know, for example, these kinds of providers that are providing you with this water solubilized, uh, you know, uh, products and make sure that, uh, you know, again, what you're then delivering to an end consumer is what that consumer expects and it's uh, going to be uh, healthy or as reasonably healthy as it can be um, and also genuine and authentic yeah so so it's um, I think it's important uh, to to note that you do have to uh, have quality processes processes in place to avoid any type of these issues that we're seeing uh, and on top of that another reason we need the uh, three-tier system is exactly to avoid situations like this because um, look down at uh, Costa Rica where we just had a spate of tourists who actually were killed from drinking poisonous alcohol. Uh, it was from the black market and contained, some of it contained methanol that, that killed people. Here in the States you don't find that because we have a rigid three-tier system that uh, prevents that and if there was any type of incident, uh, the, the army of people employed by the beer distributors, whether independent or big brewer owned, that army of people gets out to the market and pulls back any product that is or may be dangerous. Uh, in the cannabis world, that doesn't exist. And it's really critical. Right, I right. Think. And you're right. The federal prohibition on it certainly creates conditions where there can't be federal oversight of these kinds of producers. And so there ends up being more black market stuff. As we all know, when you can legalize and regulate tax and, uh, uh, you know, build a system around regulating these kinds of things, you end up with greater consumer safety than you do in a kind of prohibition. Everything's illegal. Everything's, you know, run by the, the black market kind of environment. And, you know, the end result is more safety for consumers that way. Exactly. And that's what it's all about is, is giving uh, products to consumers that are that are safe, uh, as close as 100% safe as we can get. And uh, uh, that, to me, that's so critical to, to do that. And uh, from my perspective, you know, I'll source out the ingredients and make sure they're high quality from a, a reputable supplier, um, because there are some out there who are, uh, well, th their processes for quality aren't quite in place yet. Um, so we deal with, with companies who really have high quality standards, and uh, they can tell us exactly what's in the product. So they'll have uh, what uh, everybody knows as C, C of A's, Certificates of Analysis. And these uh, are chemical analysis that are done on each batch so you know exactly what's in there and what's not in there. And so you can actually use this and uh, produce your products and, and make really good, high-quality, safe products. And, um, and that's why in the black market, uh, you know, people don't care much about quality and, and you end up with uh, some suppliers that uh, include ingre ingredients that can actually make people sick or worse and uh, and that's why I think we need uh, this this particular area cannabis to be federally legalized to prevent this type of activity in the future yeah yeah no I, I couldn't agree more whether you use it or not you know it's uh, um, there is something about the legal approach of prohibition which doesn't make it better for anybody uh, simply enables uh, more addition uh, crime 
and uh, all the other negative effects that kind of come along with that, including damage and, and injury to individuals that do choose to use it potentially. Right, and and um, and also um, you can regulate it. And, and uh, besides the safety is uh, actually from from ingredients, you have the safety built into the dosages. So. Uh, uh, if it were federally regulated, you could uh, actually have uh, different classifications. Uh, for example, in, in the beer world, you know, you've got a, a beverage of moderation. Uh, beers that are non-alcoholic up to strong beers. But in general, most beers are around 5 or 6% ABV. Uh, then you've got wines, which are, um, you know, in general, 12 to 15% ABV. And then you've got spirits, which are distilled spirits. And those are classified as spirits. They're very strong. Um, in, in the world of cannabis, uh, why not do the same type of general classifications where you've got low-dose, kind of medium-dose, and high-dose products? Um, you kind of have that now in the states where it's legal with uh, medical and then recreational. A me- a recreational is, in general, uh, THC content anywhere from a milligram up to uh, 100 milligrams, and uh, medical is over 100 so there's a general uh, leaning towards that type of uh, regulation. But I think we, we definitely need to uh, make it more clear so that consumers can start to experiment with cannabis and know exactly how much they're taking and, and what they feel like so that they can stay in control and kind of gauge you know, what kind of uh, reaction they're going to have when they have a, a 5 milligram product or a 10 or a 20. Yeah. You know, and it's, there are plenty of corollaries to, to alcohol there, you know, as well. There are going to be people that enjoy this. There are people who want to try and realize that that's not the product for them. But uh, what do you think the ultimate size of this market for uh, cannabis infused beer, cannabis uh, kind of drived beverages in that kind of beer space, you know, looks like? Is this, um, you know, obviously you're building a business around this. And uh, you're, you know, putting some eggs in that basket. Uh, you know, how, how big do you think it's going to be? And, uh, you know, what do you look at as a timeline for this becoming uh, the thing that it will become? Well, I think uh, the thing to keep in mind is that it is still federally illegal. Uh, so as long as it's federally illegal, I don't think the market will be as big as the beer market. Yeah. Um, but once we see federal legalization, that's when I think uh, it will uh, explode. I think it's it's going to be really, really big. Um, the big question is, you know, is it going to be bigger than the beer market? Uh, and I, I don't think so. But at the same time, consumers don't know what they don't know. Uh, they, a lot of them aren't familiar that you can actually have a beer with cannabis. And, and most people see our product and they say, oh, it's, it's alcohol plus cannabis. So there's so much education that has to go on. Um, it, it's almost like at the beginning of the craft beer revolution. Um, at least in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I launched Blue Moon, I remember uh, most people back then didn't think craft beer would be you know, much more than 1% of the market. Right. Uh, but the Brewers Association got behind it and pushed and really uh, helped grow it to, um, their goal was 20 by tw- 20% by 2020. I, th- I think it kind of flattened out at around 12-ish, 13-ish percent of the market. But of course, there are some cities that are like Portland, Seattle, uh, Denver, where craft beer is, is bigger than that. Um, other cities, it's less. But uh, back then, in the 90s, nobody thought it would get that big. Cannabis right now, I think, is sitting right back then uh, where craft brewers were sitting, where it's very small. It's growing, for sure. Our products are growing. But the minute we see federal legalization, is that'll be the true starting point where we'll see this thing explode. And um, we'll see people use cannabis for certain occasions where 
oh, alcohol doesn't fit, and then of course alcohol will be in these other occasions where cannabis doesn't fit. And at the end of the day, you'll have drinks, uh, whether alcoholic or cannabis, uh, that have their, all of their occasions. Uh, and I think we'll still see a decrease in the amount of smokables in the cannabis market because it, it is, it's not very social. Uh, and of course the health implications are there. Um, and uh, just a lot of things about smoking people that uh, are, are kind of negative to a lot of people, whereas drinking has been part I of I like our- my lungs. I like to be able to breathe. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Most of us do. A <laughs> few things like that. Right, right. You know, one question that, that, that you know, uh, before we close here, uh, building a beer, I mean, the reason we have something called beer is because there were ingredients that were readily available to the people that started making those products in those kinds of places where, where beer originated. And it has become what it is because, you know, the, the stuff was there, you know, it's it fermented in a certain way. There were natural yeasts that, uh, you know, that caused this kind of stuff to happen in the very earliest times of beer. Um, you know, and so the beverage developed and the flavors developed, you know, based on what was possible and what was available, you know, with something like cannabis, we're now kind of, um, taking that same beer flavor that's comfortable that we, you know, we're used to and you, know, you are taking alcohol out, you are adding THC in f- for that beer experience that produces a different kind of psychoactive experience in alcohol. Is this idea of beer, you know, uh, infused then with cannabis, a bridge to something that's next where there are different beverages that taste a different way because they are made with cannabis and because there is not necessarily the same kind of uh, ingredient process to create alcohol that creates that also that flavor in beer. You know, is this a bridge or do you think that there's something enduring about that flavor of beer that humans are attracted to um, that makes this, you know, where this kind of cannabis based beverage uh, has the most opportunity? I think um, at Seria, we, we, are initially thinking that uh, the flavor of beer is is uh, what most consumers will look for. Cannabis has a an aroma and a taste that can be quite polarizing, meaning you either like it or you don't. <laughs> Whereas beer, there's so many different styles that have so many different flavor profiles that there are some that are polarizing. But in general, there, there's a beer out there for anybody, <laughs> and and you know we've heard uh, especially uh, successful cicerones talk about how uh, they've convinced people uh, who were who were known as non-beer drinkers to drink beer because they finally found something that they liked. With cannabis, um, it is, pol- I th- at least in my opinion, everything I've, I've read and as well as some, some testing, I, I believe cannabis is too polarizing to have uh, purely cannabis products. For example, a beer that's dry hopped with cannabis and you can smell uh, uh, the strain of uh, uh, Diesel or 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 Kush or whatever strain you pick out, Girl Scout cookies, you can smell those. uh, But I don't I don't know that we'll ever get to the point. Maybe we will, but uh, I don't think so because beer can be made to taste like beer and have the effects of cannabis, which is what we do. Uh, We we make sure we we add just the THC and the CBD, but uh, we avoid the aroma and taste of cannabis and focus on the great taste of of craft beer. It makes sense. Sounds like a good place to wrap up. Uh, Keith, uh, Keith Villa, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, and I hope your listeners had a great time because I, I sure did. And, uh, and cheers to craft beer and brewing. Thanks. Uh, before we get out of here, I uh, want to thank our sponsors on this episode. G&D Chillers sets the standard on quality, service, and reliability. 
Tavor is the tastiest way to explore the world from the comfort of your home. Country Monk Group uh, understands the importance of excellent ingredients, and Clarion Lubricants is the best source for food-grade lubricants. Uh, Keith, are we going to see a GABF next week uh, rolling around Denver? We will be there, not with Seria, because this is actually the first year that the GABF is, is allowing non-alcoholic beers into, into the festival. Um, we, Seria was in the market too late uh, to get a booth. However, we do have a second uh, brewery where we, it's an alcoholic brewery where we develop a lot of the recipes um, in an alcoholic form before de-alcoholizing. It's called Donovan Brewing in, in Arvada, Colorado. And Donovan will have a booth. Um, we'll be serving a uh, Vienna-style lager and a cinnamon horchata beer. So, Well, we're looking forward to it. should be a fantastic week. Welcome to Colorado, everyone that's making the trip out for the Great American Beer Festival. While you're here and you hit a dispensary somewhere in the Denver area, grab a can of Seria beverage and, uh, and a Grain Wave and try some of this THC-infused beer. Uh, Keith Villa, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Jamie. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.